0: Our springtime series is a series from the lyrics of Knowing God. We're looking at a few selected psalms. The one today speaks of the glory of the Lord enduring forever. The glory of the Lord enduring forever. We're looking at the glory of the Lord. And of all the bards of the Bible, probably the greatest was, of course, the sweet psalmist of Israel, David himself. King David, I think, started writing little tunes and melodies as he sat as a shepherd boy watching his father's flocks, as he observed the creation, as he observed nature, as he saw the life cycle, Of nature before him and as he tended the sheep and as he was aware of the terrains of mountain and valley as he was aware of the weather of the storms that would come in and then the warm sunshine that would warm and then the changes that would take place in the seasons and all of the different kinds of animals I think you have a lot of time to be observant when you're watching sheep it's a theory which I like among Bible scholars that King David didn't write this Psalm. We know he wrote Psalm 103. It starts out very similar. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless the Lord, bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all His benefits, and He heals and He forgives. And you know the rhythm of that great 103rd Psalm. We sing that in in hymns and we say it a lot. Bless the Lord, O my soul. It's David talking to his own soul. He's addressing his own soul and he says, soul, we would say, I suppose, self. <laughs> Bless the Lord, honor the Lord, lift Him up. Blessing the Lord has more than just to recognize His greatness, but it is to have an affection for Him. The blessing in the Old Testament is something that is conveyed from a superior to an inferior quite often, but it is an expression not only of respect and honor, but it's an expression of affection. And that's what David is calling on us to do in Psalm 103. And in Psalm 104, if he's the author, but as I said, it's a a theory that David didn't write 104. that His son did. King Solomon. And one of the basis of the theory is that the... 104th Psalm is an extremely observant with respect to nature, with respect to the creation. And you see that, of course, in the Proverbs and in the reputation that King Solomon had that's outlined in the books of Kings and Chronicles, how that he collected what we would consider scientific data from all over the world, really. And he had scientific parties, probably there was no one greater than King Solomon in collecting data and information about nature and about the geography and the uh, biology of the world than King Solomon until we come to the days of Alexander the Great who had that great group of scientists that marched along with his troops as they conquered the world in military might and dominion. They sought to understand the world and to see and observe all things in it. And no doubt King David was very observant and he transferred this skill and this gift to his son, which the Lord by divine gift enhanced and multiplied and gave Solomon this wisdom and this insight, this scientific capacity to do the scientific method to observe, empirical method to observe and to see and to develop analyses and taxonomies. Well, that may be a little stretch, but that's what you see here. And the psalm starts out, it says, bless the Lord, O my soul, just like the third 103 psalm. But notice that next verse. O Lord my God, you are very great. Yeah, you know it. The hymn writer, Stuart Hine. O Lord my God, how great thou art. That's the exaltation of the soul and the summary of what is seen in nature and then as we see here the lyrics of knowing God we see the psalmist go into a spectrum an array of observations about nature that enables him to have some glimpse of God in order to know God And the language is very reminiscent of the creation narratives of the early chapters of Genesis. uh, Talking about the light and the firmament and the earth and the heavens and the stars and the, the moon and then talking about the earth and the sea and the dry land and then talking about that which is inhabiting the earth. As we say, the creation mandate is to give form and fullness to the earth. The Lord formed it out of an amorphous mass and gave it fullness. And that was the mandate given, of course, to man, male and female, that they were to give form and order and to have dominion and structure over the earth and they were to fill it they were to be fruitful and multiply and we see the the teeming masses of animal life and plant life portrayed in those early chapters and that's what the rest of the psalm goes on to talk about it was too lengthy to read but it's not too lengthy to preach on so just let's do that actually I'm just going to survey it a little bit for you You clothed with splendor and majesty. The splendor is the beauty of God's creation. And the majesty is its royalty, its honor, its holiness. Pagans slip a cog somehow. By worshiping the creation rather than the creator. As Paul says, who is what? Blessed forever, he says in Romans 1. And that's the same language here of this psalm. It is the creator who is the divine maker of all. It is the creation that is the product of his genius and of his wisdom and of his work and most importantly, his word that goes forth out of his mouth, which does not return void, but it accomplishes that thing whereto he sent it. In other words, God is to be worshipped. The creation is to be admired. The sermon may have a little relevance today, but it certainly had relevance in the 19th century. In the 19th century, in Western intellectual life, there was calling into question at many levels the very existence of God. An evolutionary hypothesis told us about a way to explain everything you see in creation, especially plant and animal life, apart from any creator, apart from any maker, set aside any concept in your mind that someone with supreme intelligence thought designed and produced that which we see with our eyes which our scientific empirical abilities give us a chance to see but there's no god he didn't there's no creation The sad thing is that when you think of it logically, there's a premise that atheist and evolutionary thinkers adopt as a conclusion. The premise is simply, there is no God. Therefore, there could be no creation. But creation is the evidence, the prime piece of evidence for the creator and when you rule out of court the major primary piece of evidence it's easy to come to the conclusion you see how circular the reasoning is and do you see how all reasoning is presuppositional and can you see how they start where they want to finish they say there is no God, therefore there's no creation. But a creation is that which proves, among many other infallible proofs, there's this proof that God exists. The very existence of one single molecule shows us there's a molecule maker. One cell implies, without a question, that there is a cell designer. So where are you going to start? Give me me a hint of where you're going to start logically and I'll give you a pretty good surmise of where you're going to end up. You say there is no God, then there can be no creation and let's start looking around for other ways to explain it. Big boons. Evolution. Survival of the fittest. But if you just will believe your eyes, if you will but behold what you see. And what do you see? You see the magnificence of what appears to us even with the pair of bifocals that they put on the Hubble telescope, you will see that there's an immensity, appearing to us almost an infinity to the creation. Stars, many times larger than our own sun, Millions and millions of miles, light years away, vastness to the universe. The array of stars across the skies is nothing but just little flashing glimpses of light to talk about the true light that lights the world. And that is the glory and splendor of an almighty, infinite, wise, majestic God. How far can you see? And there's more evidence out there than there is here of His existence and His might and his wisdom. Set the telescope aside and bring on the microscope and look at the the small, the micro, and the smaller, and the smaller. Get down to the molecule. Get down to the atom. Get down to the electron and the neutron and the proton and whatever else, tons or beneath that. And see the wisdom, the intricacy. Observe the solar system with the planets in orbit, and look at the cell with the electrons in orbit. And explain to me, please. I'm above average in intelligence, I could catch on if you can explain it. Explain to me gravity. I didn't say describe it. I said explain. Tell me exactly what it is. The tendency of a body in a mass and blah, blah, blah. Tell me what it is. And you see it on the function of the earth. He goes into it later when He talks about the foundations of the earth. When he talks about separating the sea from the dry land, we say, well, Ron, that's just gravitational pull. Water seeks its level. It comes down out of the springs and the the mountains and the melting snows, and it goes to the lowest surfaces on earth and the higher surfaces with the topography of the earth, and you can explain and explain, and we can study that all day long in a science class. We say, well, that's gravitational pull, bringing the water down. Okay, explain to me gravity between the earth and the sun. between the the solar system and the other systems? The galaxies. What holds them together? What makes them pull toward each other and orbit around each other? And then what keeps them? Centripetal and centrifugal force you try to explain to me, but tell me what does that? I see it happening, but what does it? Hebrews says that the Son of God holds it together with His powerful Word. The same power that said, let there be light, and there was light, is the same powerful Word that speaks all things into existence in creation and holds all things in what appears to be an immutable stability. And the language here is used. This is beautiful. Uh, This is one of those places where the muse becomes a bard. (laughs) The one who looks and muses and thinks and concentrates and observes God's phenomenal creation. And then puts it into poetic, lyrical form in order to sing it. Because it's not enough to say it. You've got to sing it. In saying it, you have just the old vibrations of the vocal cords in a rather flat way. But when you sing it, you have the intonations, the sounds, melody, and harmony and you join your feeble voice with the trees of the forest and with the stars of the sky all having their unique vibrations and with the vibro-acoustic elevation far above noise, far above sound it becomes a symphony symphony, same sound with one theme, one strain, one exalted refrain, how great Thou art. That's what the creation is to do for us. It is to give us something to look at that will Open our minds and thrill our hearts. And that's what you see. Oh, there are a lot of things in this psalm. Let me just mention one. It's just all sorts of wonderful things. If I was a preacher, I'd preach on them. But um, I love verse 14 when he starts talking about uh, the grass and the grains of the earth and the plants and cultivating for food. and Of course, this reminds you once again of creation, of the cultivation of the garden. But notice he says, you bring forth fruit from the earth and wine to gladden the heart, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The wine, the oil, the bread. The things that we use in ritual to show the blessing of the Lord. The wine, the giving of the joy which comes from sins forgiven, washed in the blood of the Lamb. The bread, the bread of life, the body of Christ, His body offered as the sustaining manna from heaven, the true manna which God gives us to not just sustain us physically as the wheat and the grains of the field, but to sustain us spiritually. And the oil, the oil of gladness, the oil of anointing, the oil of bestowal that the blessing is poured out upon us where the Lord anoints us with oil showing us his election, his favor upon us and makes the face to shine. A beautiful picture of the anointing in the Bible. There's a lot of anointings in the Old Testament and many of them are with oil. The anointing of the kings and the prophets, but the anointing of the priest where they would take the anointing oil and pour it down over Aaron's head and it would run down over his beard. Remember that beautiful song, that psalm? And that oil would make a glisten and a glow to the face of Aaron, to show the enlightening of the presence of the Lord. Oh, there's a lot of stuff in here. Let me get one more thing in. I'm just about out of time. Later on in about verse 29, uh, verse 28, he says, um, talking about all the good food that's given. He says, when you give it to them, they gather it up. And when you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When the Lord hides His face, there is a dismay. There's a cloud, there's a darkening upon earth. Just like the clouds covered us this morning with a foreboding darkness. When the Lord hides His face, there's a dismay. There's a darkness. There's an ignorance. There's a depression. There's a pall upon humanity. Where there is no knowledge of God, where there's no light of His countenance, humanity tends to drift into an abysmal blackness. It says, when you take away their breath, they die. The very oxygen that we breathe, the very composite of the elements that come comprise our atmosphere. The probability of those gases coming together in a certain place in order to sustain human life and animal life with the lungs and the gills to receive the oxygen, to reject, and to move out the other gases. And to have that to be the very thing that empowers the cell, the three trillion cells in your body have to be oxygenated. And when the Lord removes that, it's over. You're done. There's death. But notice the theme of death and resurrection. The very next verse, he says, when you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. This is the picture in the Old Testament, a lyrical, beautiful picture of death and resurrection, the sending of God's spirit. Paul tells us in straightforward prose that God raised Christ up by The spirit of power. His powerful spirit. When the spirit of the Lord goes forth, then there is resurrection. There's life. There's renewal. And it's true of the human soul as well as the grasses of the field come spring. And then the very conclusion here. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. It will. When the Lord is finished with this earth, He's got another one. The new heavens and the new earth. There is that renewal. There is that renovation. There is that melting away with fervent heat and there is that reforging of God's creation. So the creation shows the glory of God. It always will. Because the creation though not eternal, because it had a beginning in time when God created it. Creation is not eternal. I don't care what Carl Sagan tried to tell you about billions and billions and billions of years. There was a moment when creation was brought into existence. And there's a day when God makes all things new. And forever, for all eternity, there'll be a new heaven and a new earth in which a new humanity dwells And that will praise the Lord forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. The poet just can't rest. He said, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. Singing, next verse, prayer. May my meditation, and that same word is used for prayer may my meditation be pleasing to him Let the words of my mouth the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight you need to get rid of what um, Zig Ziegler used to call stinking thinking <laughs> your thinking, your meditation those things in your heart and in your mind that, those themes that you live by. Those maxims and those words, those deeply held principles and prejudices, they need to be cleaned up. They need to be pleasing before the Lord. Then, I don't know what happens to the psalmist at this point, but it's been a beautiful psalm and all of a sudden he becomes imprecatory. He has one of those hateful things he says, a little hate speech in here. He says something that sounds so ugly. Listen, verse 34, verse 35. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Why in the world did he put a sentence like that in a beautiful lyrical psalm like we've just been looking at? Well, it's because he remembers Genesis 3 as well as Genesis 1 and 2. And Genesis 3 is the curse, the sin, the rebellion, the pride of the human heart. And if there's anything that has fouled God's creation, it is sin. And He wants it completely excised from the earth. Here's his heart. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. That's a call for Calvary. That's a call for the cross. That's the psalmist saying, can there be some way that wickedness can be purged from the earth? And the Lord before the foundation of the earth had a plan whereby wickedness would be purged from the earth and it would be done this way. The sins would be placed in the sun and the sun would be placed upon a cross and the wrath of God against the sins of man would be poured out upon the sins, on the Son, on the cross. How does God get rid of sinners? He makes them saints. By grace. He makes them saints. And those who will not bow to Him, those that will not come to Him, those that will not trust Him, those that will not believe upon Him, those that deny His existence, those that curse Him, those that are anti-Christ and will not repent and will not bow their knees, they are removed from the creation. God created everything and He said, it's good. And He intends to keep it that way and to make it that way for all eternity. And then He finishes with the incluso that we started. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And then finally, that last sentence there is just simply one word. Praise the Lord. In the Hebrew, that's hallelujah.